Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Greg Sattel is a popular speaker and advisor, as well as the author of the new book, Cascades, How to Create a Movement that Drives Transformational Change. His earlier book, Mapping Innovation, was selected as one of the best business titles of 2017 by 800 CEO Reed. Greg's transformational work has been covered in the Harvard Business Review, Barron's, Forbes, Inc., and Fast Company. A global citizen, Greg spent 15 years living and working in Eastern Europe, among other things, where he managed a leading news organization during Ukraine's Orange Revolution. An accomplished entrepreneur, executive, and one of the foremost experts of tech innovation today, Greg speaks to audiences around the world and works with leading organizations to better compete in today's disruptive marketplace. He was recently named by Innovation Excellent as number two on its global list of top 40 innovation bloggers. Greg helps successful organizations overcome disruption and blaze a better path forward for the future. Greg, welcome to the One Away Show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, it's uh, great to meet you. I so enjoyed our conversation before we kicked off the recording. Craig, what is the one-away moment that you want to share with us today? My one-away moment was in 2004, I found myself in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, and I was running a major news organization during the Orange Revolution. And it was just one of those... One of those rare moments where the universe kind of opens up and, and gives you a little bit of a glimpse and you say, gee, the, the world doesn't really work the way I thought it did. I, like most people, I thought that there was a certain power structure and, and things were, were kind of controlled. And here it was that nobody with any conventional form of power had any ability to shape events in any way. I mean, nobody really knew what was going on or what would happen next. There was just this mysterious force that uh, nobody could describe, but nobody could deny that was moving things along. And what amazed me was how thousands of and thousands of people uh, who'd ordinarily be doing very different things would all of a sudden stop what they were doing and start doing the same thing in almost perfect unison. And we changed the country and we changed the world. And it seemed like very organic. And I said, and I I said, how did that happen? And that was what sort of launched me on my journey to Mm -hmm. learn more about movements and transformation and change. And of course, what I found was it wasn't nearly as random or spontaneous as I had originally believed or as I'd experienced it to be. And eventually I became friendly with one of the people who helped uh, architect and engineer not only that revolution, but 
the one in Georgia and the one in Serbia before it, which collectively are known as the color revolutions. Yeah. Wow. Well, what a uh, global perspective, not, not something that I hear every day on the show. So uh, I'm thrilled to dive in uh, with this. You said something I really want to lean into. You said you were in an environment in Kiev and Ukraine where there were people with no power and, and couldn't create change. Were you one of those people with no power who who felt like you couldn't create change? And if so, what did that feel like? I don't know. It was a bit different for me because I was a foreigner, right? Okay. So in some sense, you know, uh, people saw me as, you know, an outsider. But in my role leading a major news organization, I was certainly more than an innocent bystander. And of course, there was, because we were an American-owned business, uh, the founder and and me were obviously both American. Of course, a lot of people, <laughs> there were, re- some people thought that, you know, we were behind it, right? <laughs> that, that we were part of some conspiracy. But I, I certainly, I guess you couldn't call me powerless, but it, it wasn't me driving it. Right. What, what, what I was amazed that all of the people you'd expect to know what was going on, um, the journalists I would speak with in the newsroom every day, the other business leaders, the political leaders I would talk to from time to time, nobody had any idea what was going on or what would happen next. Hmm. And and today, I even had a conversation today. I said, well, this generation, what we're missing, we need our Nelson Mandela. We need our Gandhi. We need our King. But there wasn't any of them either. There was no visible leadership. There was no, uh, there was a, a presidential candidate. But if you look at the successful movements today, it's very rare that there's some great charismatic leader. And when there is, there's serious questions about how effective they are. So it wasn't me in particular that felt powerless. It was, I think the more salient point and and what intrigued me was the people who were supposed to have power all of a sudden seemed powerless. Mm, Wow. Your ability, right, to observe and and kind of have your boots on the ground with that external perspective. I mean, I'm sure you're extremely present to what was going on on the ground floor. Now, what I want to ask is... Well, I, what I can tell you is <laughs> you're giving me too much credit. I didn't have any idea either, right? I mean, you're just in a flow of events. When you're in them, I mean, in some ways you have less visibility. Right. Just so I understand and the audience understands, you were able, to, as you reflect on that, you, you've realized that you didn't really even have an idea then what was going on. Oh, I knew then I didn't have an idea. Then. I mean, nobody had an idea. Nobody knew what was going on. What really kicked it for me was a, two years later. So it was 2006 by this point. I was in Silicon Valley. I was uh, doing a publishing course at Stanford and everybody was talking about social networks. And we had a a massive digital business in Ukraine. And I said, wow, this social network stuff is something I should really learn about. So I started researching network science. And what I found was an almost perfect mathematical explanation for almost everything that happened during the Orange Revolution. 
And scientists had even had a name for it. And because of some breakthroughs in the late 90s, we now know exactly how these things work. And uh, and these things are called a cascade, a network cascade or a viral cascade. And so that's where the name of my last book comes from is called uh, Cascades. Got it. Makes so much sense. Now, to your point, can you just back to Ukraine? I really want to set the foundation here. And it's cool. You've had this journey, though, that's giving you so much context and interest in what you've experienced. Back to Ukraine, what were those current power structures that, that were in place, perhaps, that maybe shouldn't have been in place? Like what, what's the historical context there? Ukraine, of course, had a, a, a history as, as a communist country. Right. And then became democratic. So you had a government which was very corrupt. You had uh, an oligarchic structure. Uh, These were people who had gotten, uh, you know, state assets and had amassed a a large amount of wealth. You had uh, other governments, the Russian government, the United States government, the EU. Um, you had the media, we as as a as a major news organization. All of these things had power. You had the police, the army. I mean, uh, these are all institutions that wield institutional power. Nobody really seemed to be able to shape events. Um, and that's what nobody was driving the bus, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, Things just seem to take on a a a life of of their own, and it was uh, it was only later, as I started researching these things and I researched network science and started writing about it, I met my friend Sir Ja, who who helped engineer these things, and and I and I learned that there was an actual way to do this not through traditional power structures and that's uh and that's what I work with organizations today is to harness many of those same forces to catalyze transformation and change within their own organizations and industries super interesting so you're living in a sense of society that not a lot of change not a lot of things to be changed no one really knew what was going on? Nobody wanted change. No one wanted change. Stagnant, and it sounds like there was a bubbling effect, the you know, like boiling water. Where no, it was like someone flipping well, a switch. Well, okay, like then that yeah. too. Where, where I woke up, I, I remember. I I tell this story in my book. So I wake up. It's early one Saturday morning, and my fiance, who's not ordinarily an early riser, I was surprised to find that she was not only already awake, but fully dressed and heading out the door. (laughs) And, you know, you start going through your head, like, what did I do? (laughs) I seem, I seem to be in trouble and I don't know why. And so I got up, I sort of meekly asked her, you know, uh, where are you going? And she said, Oh, I'm going out to a demonstration. And I said, but I thought, you didn't care about politics. And she said, yeah, you know, I didn't, but it's enough already and we have to do something. And just like that, all of a sudden, everybody we knew, they were all going out to political demonstrations on a regular basis. And this is this is what led to the events we now know as an, 
the Orange Revolution. And when I was doing my research into network science, I found that there's a name for that. It's called an instantaneous phase transition. And we've known about that for decades. There's a even a theorem that, that predicts it called the uh, Erdős-Rényi theorem. So all of these things, which seem so strange, it turned out they have both a mathematical explanation, and I learned from my friend Serja uh, a, a a tactical explanation as well. Uh-huh. What I find so fascinating is how you really dig into maybe what creates these revolutions and the scientific and the math behind it, but then also just what you observed. Through meeting Sergja, you know, can you maybe, you said he was able to help define in a way or, you know, explain what was going on. Well, so, so they, that's really an interesting story as well, because, you know, they learned through failure. Um, There was a guy decades ago who wrote all this stuff down and figured it out. His name is Gene Sharp. He was just a terrible writer, just like horrible. Like he, 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 didn't really have a good ability to communicate, which is why his work, although is is world famous, is not as even most activists don't really know about it. But he he basically in, invented these principles of nonviolent struggle. With respect to Sir Job, he was just an activist. He was a student activist at first when uh, in 1992. He was protesting with other students against the war in Bosnia. Uh, The problem with the student protests is then the summer came and everybody went home, and that was pretty much the end of that movement, sort of similar to Occupy. And he even called that his Occupy moment. And then in 96, there was a falsified election. There was an issues with the local elections, and they had a huge protest uh, and eventually got that overturned, but in the end, they lost unity. And then in 1998, they, uh, he and four friends, they met in a cafe and they said, listen, we have to do something about Milosevic, who I don't know if you remember that name, but he was, you know, he, he was like a Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-un. I mean, he was the strongman dictator of Serbia. And they said, listen, we know we can mobilize people and get them to the polls. And we know that if we get them to the polls, we can win the election. And we know if we win the election, Milosevic is going to try and steal it. So that's what we're going to plan for. And that was the start of the Otpur movement in Serbia, which was the first of the color revolutions. So there was five of them. The next day, uh, six of their friends joined them. They became the 11 founders. A year later, they'd maybe grown to two, 300 people. And anybody who looked at Serbia in 1999 would have to conclude that, you know, Milosevic was going to be dictator for life. Mm-hmm. A year after that, uh, they got people to the polls. They had the election. Milosevic tried to steal it. And that's what started the bulldozer revolution. He was taken from power in less than a year. He was on the his way to The Hague, where he would die in a prison cell. So that's what's possible. And they had a they built a model. 
But what's what was interesting when Gene Sharp's right hand man, a guy named Bob Helvey, who's a former uh, uh, army colonel, when he went to go do training for them, they were sort of like, wow, we didn't know there was names for all this stuff. They sort of had figured most of it out on on their own and and he helped advise them but one of the really interesting things in my research they all sort of start off that way except for the civil rights movement which studied gandhi deeply there was a a start and then a a failure or series of failures in which they learned and eventually hit they all ended up hitting on the same principles i mean that's what's that's what's amazing about when you start researching movements is the successful ones all look end up looking very much alike. Mm. Wow. So this is fascinating historical context. It's uh, my godfather is Serbian and heard some stories growing up at the Serbian church, but I, I don't recall this in, in great detail, um, but it seems like it, it, all these ingredients made for in a rise, an uprise from the people. And you're, you're kind of talking about some of these ingredients that were part of the stew that led to led to this immediately. Can you share, I mean, more into the science of creating movements and creating uprisings and disruption? What's like, what is that process? When you look at the civil rights movement, when you look at what happened in Ukraine and Serbia, you know, Sounds like there's a common thread here. And a- yeah, there's a lot of them. First, every change effort starts with a grievance. There's something or a series of things people don't like, and they want them different, right? So that's the first challenge. You have to transform that sense of grievance to a, a vision of tomorrow. How do you want it to look different? And that vision should always be aspirational. Then uh, in, in our organizational work, sometimes we find the opposite where somebody has a vision, but they haven't figured out what the grievance is. So, you know, they're, they want to create an, an initiative around design thinking or agile, and they haven't articulated what the problem they're trying to solve is. So it's difficult for people to see relevance. So you need both those things, the grievance and the vision. Then you want to create. Uh, you want to create something I call in the book a keystone change. And uh, you, all, I'm leaving something out here. You always want to start with the majority. It's really, really important. Whether that is three people in a room of five, you can always expand a majority out. It's uh, once you're in the minority, you'll get an immediate pushback, which is why you tend to see these types of movements, uh, the uh, political movements or social movements, you tend to see them start off in in college campuses. Mm. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, Tea Party movements in a very similar way would start, start out in cafes, very small cafes. And sort of the mantra for my book is small groups loosely connected, united by a shared purpose. The first thing you want to do is create some sort of keystone change. And this is not the vision, but it's a, uh, so the the example I use in the book is, is Gandhi's salt march. So it has a clear and tangible goal, which the vision does not. It involves multiple stakeholders and it leads the way to future change. Um, so 
with with respect to civil rights, for example, the vision was a blessed community. The keystone change was voting rights, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, often it takes a while to identify the keystone change. Marriage equality for the LGBTQ movement, it took a long time for them to settle on that. So, and and then also you need to be explicit about your values. A great example in uh, anti-apartheid, people used to accuse Nelson Mandela of being a communist and an extremist and all sorts of things. And he used to say, whenever he was confronted with these accusations, he used to say, nobody needs to guess what I believe, because it was all written down in 1955. It was called the Freedom Charter. Even today, it's a very important document, almost like like the Declaration of Independence to us or the Constitution is to us. The Freedom Charter is still an important document in South Africa. But he was explicit it's important to be explicit about values because values are constraints, right? And because they were explicit about, you know, freedom for all South Africans, he couldn't subjugate white South Africans because that would be against the Freedom Charter and everything he'd been fighting for. It also signaled to other people who had the same values that around the world, this is something we can get behind. Um, So it's important to be explicit about your values. And you can see more recent movements have really gotten into trouble because they weren't explicit about their values and, and didn't create constraints for themselves. Then there's, in terms of planning, there's two tools called the spectrum of allies and pillars of support. But basically, much like a general maps the terrain upon which the military battle will be fought, these tools help map the terrain upon which the battle for change will be fought. So you want to identify in terms of constituencies, who are your most active supporters, who are your passive supporters, who's neutral, who's active, uh, actively, uh, passively against you and actively against you. And then you also, we were talking before about who had the power in Ukraine. You also want to map out which institutions have uh, power to actually enact change. So for instance, if you want to change education, right, there's all sorts of constituencies. You have parents, you have teachers, you have students, you have people in the community, you have, you know, all people who, for one reason or another, are interested in education, and you need to mobilize them. But then you have institutions, you have school boards, you have teachers unions, you have the parent teachers associations. Those are institutions. So you want to mobilize those constituencies to influence those institutions. So you always want to be mobilizing somebody to influence something. And it's really important that you make distinctions about those two different types of stakeholders, that those are constituencies that are targets for mobilization and institutions that are targets for influence. And that's how you design your tactics. You're always mobilizing somebody to influence something. And that's the, that's sort of what gets down to tactical design. Then you have uh, scaling up where we call weaving a network. That's usually about uh, uh, giving people co-optable resources where they can take ownership of the movement. If you think about, you know, TEDx, right? You've got thousands of people around the world working millions of, of, of hours to promote the TED brand. Why? 
because they're co-opting it for their own purposes. If you can create a co-optable resource, you can really scale. And uh, and you do that through networks. And then finally, surviving victory, which uh, one of the most interesting things I found in my research is that the victory phase is often the most dangerous phase because those people who, you know, hate your idea and want to kill it any way they can, uh, they don't just leave and give up once you've won that initial victory. In fact, they're doubling, re, you know, they're, they're redoubling their, their efforts. And we can see that right now in this country. So it's really important to go back to that sense of shared values. Um, and that is basically, I just save you 20 bucks. That's a, that's a book. There you go. I mean, I mean, I mean, fascinating, right? It's like what gets people mobilized? What are the institutions and stakeholders involved? How do you get people to protest, take action and organize a group of people? I loved what you said about starting with the majority and kind of working from there. Um, and kind of you hit that central nerve with someone and rally people around it. And, um, it's fascinating. It's easy to learn, hard to master. But what I what I was amazed when when I first and you can go to the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. You can go to their website and you can download handbooks that will tell you how to do this. They have a, a Canvas guidebook that will. But when when I started first going through his materials, their materials, and then really getting to know Sir John over the years, we've become friends, the extent to which everything had been worked out. When I, if you go and you look for the guide, uh, the guidebook for nonviolent struggles, you have the feeling that you're, you're reading some sort of brand book from proper Procter and Gamble or something like that. I mean, that's the extent to, they teach you how to plan each thing, right? And and how to do reverse planning and, and almost like a corporation. It's really absolutely incredible. And I think that's why in political and social movements, that's why so many of them fail. And, and I've, I was talking to a, a Black Lives Matter activist and he said, you know, it's pretty easy to get people to, to go march. It's very difficult to get people to sit down and do strategy. And that sense of professionalism about that realization that the righteousness of your cause won't save you. And we find the same thing when we're working with corporations where they're big on kickoff meetings, big on vision, vision statements, but they don't actually sit down and work out a chain strategy. And most of all, anticipate. You know, one of the things we, we constantly ask, how would an evil person undermine the change that you seek? How would an evil, not a nice, decent, responsible person, how would an evil person go about undermining you? And you have to think about that from the very beginning because it's going to happen. Because anytime you ask people to change what they think or do, somebody is not going to like it and they're going to work to undermine you in ways that are dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. And once you can internalize that, you're ready to move forward. Also with a really great awareness and perception for people to understand what would undermine their efforts before they start them. So they can kind of have the watchouts in place. Then you can anticipate and start building and start building strategies. And I, I go back to that moment in the cafe um, 
they they said when we we can mobilize people and get them to the polls and we can win the election and Milosevic is going to try and steal it. And they didn't say he's going to try and steal it. So it's not worth doing. He said, he's going to try and steal it. And that's going to be our chance. That's what we're going to plan for. Cause that's what happened before they had experienced it. They weren't prepared. And they said, next time, that's what we're going to pray prepare for. That's what we're going to plan for. They were so, I can send you a strategy. They even had a strategy for arrests so that every time the regime arrested one of their activists, it weakened the regime and strengthened them. They turned everything to their advantage. And that once you understand the extent to which that's possible, you understand any change is possible, right? Uh, Especially in in a in a country that was that repressive, that the leader was willing to go to war just to stay in power. Mm. The level, I mean, just the level of detail on planning to do this well and effectively, it takes a lot of forethought. Yeah, yeah, but it's but once you understand that it's possible, I mean, when I first when when I first started talking to, and learning about this, because I had experienced it. And like I said, when I experienced it, nobody knew what was going on. Nobody, it was just, it all seemed so spontaneous and and by chance and random and, you know, like a wave at a stadium. But I found out later that, you know, this was a repeatable process. And once you understand that it's actually possible to not engineer it so much, but put the wheels in motion to nurture it like a gardener would an organism. Then you say, you know, that's really, really powerful. Yeah. Greg, what, what's fascinating, just as I'm listening about your work, is it, it doesn't just apply. Your work doesn't just apply at a countrywide level or an electoral level or a it applies across organizations. It, acro- it applies across companies. It applies across that maybe perhaps a small, sh- like a, a creating a movement within your own family, like to, to create ch- effective change and lasting change. Like the the uh, well, in a family, you can really see how the you know start with the majority. <laughs> right. Well. So. So. Right. Exactly. Right. You can see it. it's a, what you're. What you're talking about is change on the biggest levels, but it can, it can be applied down to the smallest levels. So my question, Absolutely. One of the I, things we always say, I always say is, is whenever you feel the need to persuade somebody, you're probably on the wrong track because anybody who's ever been married or had kids knows how hard it can be to persuade even a single person of something they don't want to be persuaded of. If you think you're going to persuade hundreds or thousands or millions, but you're right. It's often, uh, and I and I love your point that you know it all starts at the lowest level, right? So, with that, like those under underpinnings, how do you spot a change or a cascade before it happens? Like, what what are those key aspects? Oh, that's interesting. Um, It's really interesting because the successful ones often start off very much like the unsuccessful ones. I mean, usually almost all of them have their early failures. Mm. Um, You know, Gandhi had his Himalayan uh, 
what do you call it? It was Himalayan miscalculation. They all sort of had these early missteps. I talked about Serbia, where there was, you know, 92 and then a failure, 96 and then a failure. You want to look for small groups that are becoming loosely connected and united by that shared purpose. And that shared purpose, one of the most powerful things we do in when we're working with organizations, and, and, and this is something I think everybody can apply in their everyday life, is we get people to switch, shift from differentiating values, which makes them passionate about something, to shared values, which helps bring people in. So if you look at something like agile development, where um, I, you know anybody who's ever seen somebody come back from an agile workshop or scrum workshop, you know they always want to talk about the agile manifesto because that's what makes people within that community love it. To people outside the community, it seems you know almost crazy. So you want to shift to shared values. It's it's the same thing the LGBTQ movement did for years. They were spinning their wheels with, you know, we're here, we're queer, we want to be accepted for our difference, right? Um, when they shifted, and every time they got even a little bit ahead, they got hammered with defensive marriage and family values and blah, blah, blah. And then they shifted and they said, we want the same things you want. Mm. We want to live in committed relationships. We want to raise happy families. And in record time, they changed people's views. I mean, it changed in in less than 10 years from most people against to most people for. Mm. And, And this is something that we can apply in our daily lives where we want to talk what we're passionate about. And we want to talk about when we want to give the proof points, the facts, the evidence, blah, 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 where what we want to start with, and that's that's generally not going to be effective. What's going to be effective is when you talk about shared values. If people feel that, that you share their values, they'll be willing to listen to you. If they don't feel that you, they share your values, then it won't matter what facts and evidence you put before them. They're not going to be on board. And that I think is, is, is through this whole journey is what, and that was the mistake we made in 2004 and five, which is why there had to be another revolution uh, almost 10 years later is we thought that we could overturn an election and go home. And it, And that turned out very, very badly. Hmm. And the second time, they were much smarter. And it wasn't just about an election. It was about embracing certain values. Yeah. And that's why the second revolution is. And just think about it, because it's in the news now, right? Ukraine is willing to go to war with a much bigger much more powerful country, a war they will almost surely lose because of those values. That's how powerful a sense of shared values is. When you can align on a values level, I think everything you're speaking is so right. Like when you can align on that core level, not just around shared vision, but around the shared values that will make people march toward the shared vision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, right. Drive that effective change. 
And that's also how you ladder up to a shared identity. Hmm. To mold, got it. Yep. And so you got to find the people with the shared values because if you can do that, you can probably influence them on that vision and identity to get there because they're already aligned with the other core level. And I think. Well, we all share values with each other. I mean, they're not 100% the same values, but we can usually find, even with people we don't like, we can usually find some values that you share. It doesn't mean you have to share all your values. So if you look at, for instance, the civil rights movement, we think we remember Martin Luther King and we forget that Martin Luther King was really only one of what was known as the big six of civil rights. And they all ran very different organizations, had very different networks, focused on different constituencies, different institutions, and they had different values but they were able to come together and collaborate on the values they shared. And the world is a much, much better place because of it. Oh man, Greg, this is one of the most, I mean, I talked to, I think some interesting people, but the specificity and then just the historical context that you have is it, it's on, it's just blown me away. It's been a very <laughs> powerful conversation. I want to just give you a compliment on. No, thanks for that. I really appreciate it. On Friday afternoon, this is like a Tuesday morning conversation, but we're having it on a you know, end of the week, but I'm like beyond like, it's just incredible because some of the insights you're sharing from all your learnings. Something I'm curious about for you, Greg, is with, you've taken the, you have this body of knowledge You've seen change at all levels for you personally, like within your own life, how have you created, you know, your own cascade, your own movement, so to speak, and around the things you care about? That's a great question. And, and I, one of the things that I tell people about the way the world has changed, the way the use of power has changed. Moses Naim, the name of his book escapes me at this point, but when Mark Zuckerberg did his book club, Moses Naim, his book was the, the first one. The theme of the book is that power is easier to get, but harder to use and keep. And the very nature of power has changed, right? I mean, power is the uh, ability to shape events. And what's changed is back when the world was more hierarchical, power came from the top and went down. But power no longer emanates from the top. It emanates from the center. One of the most counterintuitive things about network math is that you move to the center by connecting out. We think that you move to the center by trying to connect to the center. But a network is an organic thing. It's constantly developing and growing. And the center nodes by definition, are well-populated. But as you're connecting out, you're slightly shifting the center. Mm. And that's how you make yourself central, by connecting, yes, to the center, but also out. Everybody, yeah. Define out, out as in, I get what you're saying, but maybe give us some uh, uh, tangible context. So look at Microsoft, right? Where they used to connect to Intel, and major corporations and central nodes. Uh, these days in Silicon Valley, unless you're connecting to startup ecosystems, you're not going to make it as a major player. 
There's a wonderful book by a friend of mine, Annalie Saxenian, called Regional Advantage. I think the early 80s is when she wrote it. Because Boston used to be the center of, inter- of information technology. Companies like Digital and Data General and Wang and all these... You probably don't never even heard of these companies, but those were the big technology companies back in the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s. The reason why Silicon Valley and the book tells a story in, in wonderful detail and holds up even today is because Silicon Valley was set up as networks where the Boston-based companies were much more hierarchical. So in the Boston companies, if you went and if you left the company, you were dead to them. They never wanted to see you again. If you left the company in in Silicon Valley, your former company would almost always be a either a supplier or a customer. And Mm -hmm. those that ability to constantly connect out to those emerging nodes, that's what made Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. So that's what I mean when connecting out, not just to the obvious one, not to the obvious central node that everybody's connected to, but connecting out to those emerging nodes. Mm, Got it. And so, I mean, to your point though, it's not just about connecting out and building maybe new relationships to bring back to the center, but it's about relationships that may leave the center also staying connected to those nodes. So it's it, both. obviously you want to stay connected to the center as, as well, right. but it's connecting out. And, and there's an interesting balance that needs to be made because we are tribal by nature. Right. And that's good. Right. We've gotten this bad juju around silos, but silos are good. Silos are centers of excellence. We like to be in a team. We like to we like to be around people we have trust that we have strong bonds with. We're able to do things with we've built up bonds of trust with. But we need to balance that with keeping nodes open and letting letting new ideas and new people in. There's a, a great paper by Brian Uzi uh, and and some others from Northwestern Kellogg Business School, and they they went through 50 years of Broadway musicals to try and figure out what made some hits and some flops, and they went through all the usual stuff like the marketing budget and the production budget and the track record of the director and all sorts of stuff. And what they found was the most important factor to whether it would be a hit or a flop was the social networks of the cast and crew, of the the networks of the cast and crew. If nobody had ever worked together before, results tended to be very poor, both from a critical and a financial perspective. And as people knew you know, had more and more people had worked together before and had some level of familiarity and working relationship with each other. The results got better and better, but only up to a point. And then it started going downhill because if everybody knew each other and everybody'd worked together before, new ideas weren't coming in and it killed the creativity. So you always need that balance of good, strong ties, of of bonds of trust, but also this constantly connecting out to new blood. Yeah. It's beyond, Greg, beyond interesting. Um, 
I mean, just it, it, you're, it, you're pulling from so many sources, right? And it, like, it, it's you can just... see why I got interested enough to spend 15 years writing a book that nobody wanted to publish for a long time. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, um, it makes so much sense to me, and I mean, it's no surprise to me, you know. Um, yeah, I'm sure you know having to wait to write the book, right, made it that much richer and better because you had more time to to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, in 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 the end, I think it was good that I got to write another book first. And I, I think it's a better, certainly a better book for it. Yeah, for sure. So Greg, as we're closing out, you've developed this rich body of knowledge. You, you write I think, beautifully from the, some of the things I've read. You've built and kind of a, it sounds like a practice around this, helping people describe what you do, how you take this body of knowledge and you bring it to the world to help other people. What's that look like for you? We do a couple of things. I mean, professionally, the way I earn my living is we work with organizations to overcome resistance to change rather than sit and say, hey, let's let's create this change initiative. You know, let's do whatever it is. And then six months later, it sputters and you move on to the next change initiative that is also going to sputter. We help them sit down and plan it out and figure out how this change is going to happen from day one. And then the plan change changes over time, but they've started that process for the beginning, thinking ahead of the snafus. And one of the interesting thing is when people go through our workshops, very often we hear, you know, we thought you were going to tell us how to make change easy. But instead, you showed us how hard it is, it's going to be, which is great because now we know what we're dealing with. So that's what I do professionally. Personally, I'm going to give a, a, a quick plug here for something we do on Clubhouse that we love. I run a club called Change Agents. And every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern, we have sessions we call What's Your Idea for Change?, where we bring people in, they talk, they talk a little bit about their idea for change. There's a, a format that, that we have where they present this very clearly and very succinctly. And they get advice from an expert panel, me and four of my colleagues, but we also bring in outside experts. So for instance, there was this one gentleman in Kurdistan who wanted to help entrepreneurs because it's very hard to import and export because customs is such a problem. We paired him up with a friend of mine who runs an innovation program, an entrepreneurship program in Kurdistan, in Iraq, in Erbil, in another city in Kurdistan, and they're just opening in Baghdad. We have helped, we've brought in medical professionals to help people with, med we've brought in education professionals to help people with education initiatives. Any, all sorts of initiatives, most of them very early stage, we bring people in and we help give them uh, guidance, advice, in, in many cases, actual uh, connections to people who have resources to help them. Super neat. I mean, you're... Yeah, it's work. very cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the application to your work is vast, right? It seems like you picked a few lanes and helping other people interested in the, the spaces you're interested in as well, kind of create work around it. And Greg, this is so cool. I mean, um, you know, people, you hear a lot of people talk about creating movements where they kind of help create change, but the organization uh, purely focused on 
doing that and it sounds like a scalable way with some process and um, you know, but the custom applications to it is, is just what a, what a fulfilling uh, line of work and an interesting line of work. I'm sure it never gets old. Uh, so thank you for, thanks for your time today and your Well, expertise. thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Great. Well, Greg, where do, where can people get your book? Where can people hire you? Where can people hire you to talk, speak, write, all the things? So uh, my website is just gregsatel.com. You can always find me in LinkedIn or in Clubhouse. My books, are, of course, are on Amazon. And my, my blog is at digitaltonto.com. Awesome. Well, Greg, what a pleasure. Thank you for everything. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.